right, episode number three. Sometimes it feels like we've covered so much stuff, but at times I'm like, we still haven't even begun to dig. Scratch the surface. Nope. So we're coming from different places. You just came from a couple charity auctions? Yeah, just blew in. I was in Western Montana over the weekend. This is like my hobby, right? I don't sell cattle anymore full time as a livestock auctioneer, but I did hang on to this one little portion of my auction business that I've always loved, and that's doing benefit auctions for for different uh, different things. And and I know when you hear that, everyone's like, "What a good soul!" He's probably doing that because he's giving in kind. And I like to think I am giving in kind, but <laughs> I love benefit auctions because you basically can break all of the auction rules. Everything that you've been conditioned and taught over the years, what's acceptable, running people up, taking their same bid twice, all these rules that you cannot do in an actual auction, you just chuck them all out the window and you can just have fun with everybody. So it's like my release. You wouldn't have even consider doing the one last night if you didn't know some of the Yellowstone cast was going to be there, would you? <laughs> now in my defense, I did agree to this auction before I learned that uh, a big bulk of the cast of Yellowstone was going to show up at this benefit auction. It was for a school in the community where they're filming Yellowstone in Darby, Montana. And I'll admit, I'm not a real learned uh, scholar of the show and the roles and who's who, but I've, I've learned some since last night. But they came in and they, it was actually really neat how they all came together and they, they offered, initially it was just this tiny little package. They were offering a, basically a little bottle of whiskey and a baseball cap that was signed by the cast. As the, so I start selling, I get going and as the auction's progressing along, Forey Smith, who a lot of you guys will know who I'm talking about, he stops the auction, comes over and commandeers my microphone and much to the delight of the crowd, he starts adding stuff to the auction item. He says, you're not just going to get the whiskey and the hat. Now we're going to throw in a day where you can sit on the set as a guest and watch the filming of Yellowstone. And so the crowd, of course, roars with delight. <laughs> and we kept on rolling and going and it just, uh, it just gained a lot of steam. We ended up selling that for um, $4,500. Moses uh, Brings Plenty was also there. And he, uh, as we started to kind of plateau around that high $3,000 mark, he came up and said, you can have lunch with the cast while you're on set. Yeah, that's what pushed it from 39 3500 to 4500 and, and then we get all done and uh, the director agreed to allow us to do that for for both basically the winning bidder and the runner up so we ended up selling these two packages for $4500 a piece and of course the school the school fundraiser folks were were very delighted it was it was cool you know cuz you hear a lot of stuff about the film industry and it was it was fun to see that the Yellowstone folks were pretty down home and and uh happy to support the locals. Have you noticed the Yellowstone effect in Montana the past couple of years? That's what I'm calling it, the Yellowstone okay. effect. Okay. Are, you, are you noticing anything that you could even remotely claim um, or, you know, or identify what the Yellowstone effect is? It's made me more popular as a Montanan. I feel like places you go, people are like, You're Yellowstone. Yellowstone? Have you been there? I've had that a few times. Have you been to Yellowstone? <laughs> This is where I'm like, well, no, 
And anyway, I feel like it's elevated my status as a Montanan to a much higher plane. I travel out to New York once in a while. I have a couple buddies out there. I guess they're, I consider them buddies. I, I don't know if they consider me buddies. <laughs> and I, oh, a couple years ago, got a text and said, I, I think I understand what Montana's like. You, you come out and you talk about it. Go, I've, I've been watching Yellowstone. <laughs> I said, that's exactly how, that's exactly, exactly how Montana is. Okay, I think I'm I'm following you. So where we live, we're on the eastern side of the Rocky Mountains. Much of the movie, media, whatever you want to look at, Instagram posts of Montana is almost exclusively Western Montana. Correct. Which is almost a different state, scenery-wise, climate-wise, people-wise. Yeah. Very, very different. The thing that happens on the eastern front of the Rocky Mountains is if you go outside and something feels off, it takes you a minute to realize that the wind isn't blowing. <laughs> that's what's, that's, that's what's so off. true. The past couple of years, I've met a lot of people who have come in here and lasted a few months and they were so wind blasted, especially in the winter with, it's not just the snow, it's the wind. Right. That they, they couldn't last there. They said, this isn't, this isn't like Yellowstone. It, and literally those are the words they say and it really, um, this really isn't like me. Yellowstone. There is a, a guy that I follow. Fieldcraft Survival is his company. His name is Mike Glover. He's got a uh, strong military background. His company, Fieldcraft Survival, is designed to just make people more self-reliant, ready for emergencies. Great guy. I, I was blessed to actually take a, an all-day course from him. And this course was on the Little Belt Ranch, which is in central Montana, kind of between Harleton and White Sulphur Springs. Mm -hmm. But previous to this course, he had spent some time on this ranch and he put some posts about it. He has some background in, in riding horses. He's not unfamiliar. He's owned horses. And so he was out there helping push cattle and did some posts about it. And someone in the comments really roasted him saying he's been watching too much Yellowstone if he thinks he could be a cowboy. <laughs> he, was, he was laughing about that. Oh, yeah, sure. Real funny. That person was not far off in a lot of the people that come to Montana and get on a horse. Right. So personally, Yellowstone, I, I think I've seen the first two seasons of it, maybe part of the third. Very entertaining. Really enjoy watching it. There are some things that bothered me. I'm going to do three of them. Three of the things on the show that bothered me that, that made it where I, and it's silly to say it almost made it unwatchable for me, even though I was very entertained. Because you live here. Because I live here. Right. Number one is there was a scene where someone had stolen some cattle. And they were rushing to all the cattle auctions in the state to see if their stolen cattle were being sold. And they sent someone to Lewiston, Montana. Mm, sounds familiar. Lewiston, Montana. Lewiston, which, Montana. It's Lewistown. <laughs> Lewistown, Montana. Lewiston, Idaho. Lewistown, Montana. So I was kind of irritated that they didn't take the time to pronounce. Um, I know our uncle, our uncle yeah. owned that auction for... 20 years. 20 years, just yeah. recently sold it. Yeah. So that kind of, at first I laughed about it, but then it kind of, like a, a <laughs> You're laying, laying in bed and you're like, no, I just, I can't sleep. I can't do this. Yeah. <laughs> then the other thing is they, um, they were sending someone to the Montana State Prison, check something out, and they sent him to Red Lodge, mm. which, as we all know, the state prison in Montana is Deer Lodge. Right. Not Red Lodge. Yeah, you don't, in fact, you don't want to say Red Lodge because that's, well, that's more of an Indian town. So that, Guys, I, come on, that kind of, come on. Now here's the one that, that really, 
Cool. There, I mean, there's some some scenes that are kind of silly, where they're uh, working cattle. You know, they're going into big thick brush and roping full size bulls. I don't know that um that would ever happen. But the one that bothered me is they had a flashback to the 1800s when this um when this ranch was being established. And there were some some Native Americans transiting across the across the ranch it was winter time they were hungry needed some feed and so the the guy that owned the ranch yellowstone he told a, a couple of his guys to go cut a steer out for these these hungry native americans and so they went over there and they found one with a real bright ear tag to cut out and bring over them to slaughter i might be wrong but in the 1800s i don't think they put bright plastic ear tags on their steers and when, no. that, when that happened oh, just those little things I don't know why that bothered me so much I think they have an ear tag problem in the show so your first one say it again your first beef was Lewiston instead of Lewistown Lewiston instead of Lewistown your second beef was the prison was in Red Lodge they said it was in Red Lodge but the prison in Montana is Deer Lodge and Red Lodge is this quaint sweet little tourist town in, in Montana that is so far removed from anything prison like which is funny. And then the ear tag in the 1800s. See, I had heard a thing about they had a cow that had had a calf in one of the early on seasons. I couldn't even tell you when. But the calf jumped right up and took off running with an ear tag in its ear. You know what? You're right. Because I remember when that happened, I told my wife, yeah. I said, there's no way. No way. You know what? The show is so entertaining. Huge. I'm totally entertained by it. And it's like, it's like this cult following of people like the Yellowstone fans, like they, they are fans hundred percent. But everybody, that's not how Montana is. And that's not how ranching is. Yeah. Yeah. But it is a good show. Entertained by it for sure. The three rules to watch by. All right. And Jackson, I came across something over the weekend. I wanted to, to get your thoughts on it. Okay. How, long, how many years have you been driving for? Legally, I've been driving for like 15 years. Okay, let's just, let's do legally driving. Okay. How many miles have you done in 15 years, would you estimate? Oh, man. Estimate. I, you know, I struggle with this one because I've been through so many trucks because I started from the dirt that I've been through like 14 semis in those years. But I'm going to put there that I'm, I'm easily at my million. 15 years at a million. Because I started pretty slow, you know. I didn't yeah. just dive right into over the road. All right. So in 30 years, 2 million? I would say probably 20 years will be at 2 million. <laughs> two million. Right. I'm really, really making up for lost time. I'm asking, I came across this, uh, this news article, kind of an alert. There's a group called the Commercial Vehicle Safety Alliance, CVSA. Mm -hmm. Never heard of them. But they offer every year uh, a Driver's Excellent Award. And this year, female driver got it hmm. and her name i wrote it down here is ruth mcdonough congratulations ruth she's been driving for 40 years they estimate 4 million miles incident free that's good that's a lot of miles for the past decade she's been hauling radioactive and nuclear loads so she's probably very careful very careful 4 million miles that seems like a pretty good career yeah. started off in the mill as a military driver yeah, that sounds about, you know, Roost was three and a half million and he, he, that's a lot of years, especially if she's still trucking. Wow. That's a lot of, I mean, that's pretty, 
That's not just a casual trucker. No, it's definitely not. That's some, you know, a lot of truckers only truck for, I don't know what the average is, but I would say five to eight years and they move on to something else. All right. So as part of the award, she was able to offer tips. Okay. That she's learned in 40 years of driving. I'm going to run these tips by you. Oh, so you're going to put me at odds potentially with a 40 year, 40, 4 million mile driver. Yeah. And she's not hauling cattle. She's hauling nuclear waste. Oh man. So I don't know what's more pressure. <laughs> we better go. Those might be the two highest pressure loads you right? can haul. Huh? Yeah. Anyway. All right. Although if a cow leaves its waste on you, you don't have to worry about cancer. At least not that I know of. Whereas her loads, if you get a little spillage, yeah. has some more severe consequences. Okay. So first one, she keeps her eyes moving and looks as far ahead as she can. She checks ramps for incoming vehicles, check around her vehicle, checks mm-hmm. her mirrors. That seems pretty standard even with a passenger vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. But it's getting harder these days with all the distractions offered by technology. So that's good. It also keeps you awake, keeping your eyes moving. It's hard to stay awake in a car, much more hard than it is in a semi because there's so much stuff going on. So I'm with Ruth. All right. So this one, this one, you never know what you're going to get into. She likes to look through the back windows and mirrors of the vehicles in front of her. Mm. You can observe a lot by looking inside the vehicles around you, such as the driver's head bobbing. You don't want to see the passenger's head bobbing oh. by the driver. Okay. That's a so joke. she's that's talking a, that's about... a joke. <laughs> I just got it. I just got it. Okay. Right, driver's head bobbing indicating they might be sleepy or fatigued. Okay, so that's something she likes to... <laughs> she likes to look in the windows and see what's yeah, going on in those cars I'm, a, I'm usually a little slow to pick up but once I pick up oh, I really gotta laugh it out <laughs> okay okay. I'm sure Ruth has observed many things over 4 million miles alright so those are her those are her big two tips basically just keep your eyes open I, you know I do like it because uh, I've noticed when you look in your rear view and someone's coming up the passing lane pretty hot on you these cars that are going, you know, 80 mile an hour, you can watch and you'll notice them as they're coming up. You'll see them kind of get close to the center line and then they might bob back over to the, to the, the fog line on the left. And I always think to myself, I bet they're on their phone. And then they go whizzing by and you look through their windows and you're like, yep, there it is. Phone on their lap. That's why they're weaving. <laughs> I wanted to come back a little bit to something that we referenced in our first and probably even second second podcast and that was who to write colonies hmm. our dad i'd say the pigs he bought 90 percent easily maybe 95 percent was yeah coal sows from from who to write colonies and coal sows just to for those of you listening this is with all livestock eventually all livestock kind of reach it sounds harsh to say the end of their useful life but humans are this is kind of the same way we just go into retirement when we're at the end of our useful working life but Livestock do the same thing, be it, you know, pigs or chickens or cows or sheep or goats or, or grasshoppers or whatever it is that you're, that you're producing. And at that point, whether it's from age or from ailment, they become cull. And so that's where they go to market. I'm going to give a little bit of background about Hooterites. If someone needs to correct me on this, please do. But I think I'm, I'm pretty correct on this. Um, Historically, Hutterites are a German-speaking religious group. The religious group is, is called Anabaptist, which 
really translates or means adult baptism. Some religions baptize at birth, some baptize a younger age. Anabaptists, it's they, they don't get baptized until they are adults. Most people have probably heard of um, Amish. A lot of people probably have heard of Mennonites. A lot fewer people have heard of Buddhists, but they all kind of descend religiously from one from one leader, a German Baptist. Europe, 1500s is when it started. I don't know the details of how these three, the Mennonites, Amish, and Hudrites, branched, but at some point they each branched into these these three distinct groups. And I believe I think around the 1800s, the Hudrites came this direction from Europe, meaning uh, Montana, South Dakota area. Some things that separate Hutterites from Mennonites and Amish is they live communally in colonies. Each family on the colony has their own living space, but meals are prepared and eaten in a central kitchen and dining area. They kind of have the idea, all things in common. Um, very few personal possessions, no personal wages for work. All the work is for the, the good of the colony. Thus, the colony takes care of the members from birth to death. One thing that is different than, than Amish is they're very, is Hooterites are very progressive farmers and their involvement with agriculture. They're often very early adopters of the newest technology. Totally. And, and this is always what's interesting when you do business with the Hooterites. In fact, I've got a, just a quick technology thing I'll throw in. It's funny because we grew up with Hooterites around this area, north central Montana. And then now I'm over in Lewistown. And we have an Amish community close that I do a lot of business with there. And the Hooterites don't have TVs. They keep all of the outside influences that they possibly can outside of the colony. But when it comes to these technologies, their dairies are always um, state of the art. They have, you know, all their, all their cattle have um, individual chips not like implanted chips but in their collars or ear tags they have chips so they keep very close track through computer technology of all the production of their cattle their hog barns are automated you know the feeding systems and it's so cutting edge i even uh i hauled a load of cows to the the processing plant in idaho here a couple weeks ago and uh the financial they call him the boss um, or the clerk for the colony the financial clerk called me and said, I've got payment for you. And usually I take just payment through the mail, you know, old school with the check. And he goes, have you ever done emailed checks before? Uh, uh, no, I've never heard of it. So here, here this, uh, this financial clerk from this Hooterite colony is teaching me about this new method of payment where basically they send you a check, it's all codified, and then you print it out on your computer and take it to the bank. And I'm like, you just print one and send it to me, you know, I, that's, that's fine. There, it was just funny because he was way beyond what I wanted to deal, deal with, you know, technolo- technologically. Yeah, they, I mean, the, the dairies around here, it seems like they're even starting to turn them into, instead of humans milking the cows, mm-hmm. it's robots milking them. Right. Yeah, very technologically advanced, early adopters of new technology. If you are out and about in the community, you will you will recognize Hooterites by the clothing they wear. Mm-hmm. Uh, modest, simple clothes, kind of a uniform style. Women, blouses and ankle length dresses with a head covering. Often the uh, dresses are colorful to some degree. Yeah. Um, they usually have a... Kind of old school floral print a lot. Kind of what you see. Yeah. For whatever, whatever reason. 
dark pants for the men, the men and the women, they wear dark jackets and coats. Part of that is just, you know, this idea of dressing differently from mainstream society. You know, I, as this is another little tidbit that's interesting, and I didn't really know how to explain this because I actually don't know the, I can speculate as to the answer. I have a pretty good idea, but I put out a video here, you know, a few weeks back on the Wild Wild West YouTube channel that we do. And it was taking the box off dad's old truck. And we sold those boxes to a Hooterette colony that wanted to use the livestock boxes, basically set them up and use them as a transfer station for their hogs to go from their hog barn into the semi that would haul them to the plant. So two guys from the colony came and brought their semi and we loaded them up. And I'm used to this because I don't, I don't even think twice about it, but they were, they were wearing you know their black jackets. The men wear, they're basically Western button-up shirts. And then they wear a black jacket over those. And again, this was just normal to me, but they're extremely square-shouldered jackets. And I didn't even think of it until people were commenting, going, what's with his jacket? Boy, he's like, like 80s rock star shoulder pads. <laughs> and I was like, uh, well, I guess I've never even thought about it because I've just grown up with them and I've, I've never even questioned it. But I would assume it's something to do with you know, squareness in the way that they dress, like you'd mentioned, is kind of to, to keep it plain and, and remind themselves maybe to be uniform or succinct. Or, I'm not sure. It's a good question. I need to ask. Uh, I'll ask Teddy next time I'm up at the colony there at Valier. So if you're driving, driving through Montana, central and eastern Montana, there's no colonies on the western side of the state. But central and eastern Montana, out in the middle, you'd just be driving through the middle of farmland and you'll look out off the road and you will see a huge collection of buildings. It almost looks like a little town, mm-hmm. but it, you know, it's clearly, it's not a town almost, almost guarantee you it's a Hooterite colony. And often as you drive by the entrance to it, they'll have signs out there where you can pull in and buy, buy fresh produce, you know, mm-hmm. that big gardens you can, you know, they'll have a stand on the colony that you can, uh, you can go in and buy produce. Sometimes they'll be selling frozen chickens they've raised. And then also a lot of farmers markets around the state now, a lot of the colonies will weekly load up their produce and, and drive around the state and sell at them. And it's, it is, it's like, it's good. It's their, their bread is amazing. Their, their produce is always the most robust. I still don't understand because we garden too. And I get to the harvest time and you're like, huh. And you go over to the Hutterites and you're like, how is your stuff, your corn's like four weeks ahead of ours, your tomatoes are twice, you know, it's just, they really do it right. But the colonies basically are, I can't say how many divisions they're broken into because they all vary a little bit. But generally speaking, they kind of need about, I think a minimum of about 10,000 acres in order for these, I think there's about usually about 80 people on the colony. And so they need about 10,000 acres minimum. They have a farming sector. They have a dairy sector. They have a hog sector. And then about half of them have a beef cattle sector. And then they have a, a monstrous garden and then usually some kind of poultry, whether it be chickens or turkeys. Poultry's become really big because uh, in Great Falls, I think that's where they go to. They have a, a big egg buyer. Oh. So a lot of these colonies now are putting in these monstrous, basically egg barns. They, and I think a lot of the Costco eggs or a lot of the, the colony eggs go to. Is that part of the, are they set up for like the free range certification or cage free? Is that, yeah. does that ring a bell? 
Yeah, but that doesn't mean anything. I know. That's another episode, isn't it? <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Cage free and free range is right. Yeah. Look into it. It's not, you could have 30,000 chickens. And if they have access to go into about a 10 by 10 space outdoors, they can be labeled free range. Yeah. I mean, that's a little bit of an over exaggeration on my part, but. Right. But you get the idea. Get the idea that mm-hmm. free range and um, cage free are gimmicky even, marketing. Yeah. Even organics become quite a bit that way. They all speak German. Yeah. That's what, that's their first language. First language. Kids don't learn English till they're a little bit older. So they're all, they're all German speaking. And they go to school till eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Eighth grade, yeah. Public school? Nope. They have a school in the colony. Um, mm-hmm. They usually have a, one dedicated school teacher who is a, I think they're a, like paid by the state. Yeah. Cause I, th- from what I remember, they're in the school district. They're a school, they have their own school district, each yep. little one. And they, uh, so they get a, usually an outside teacher. It's not a, it's not a teacher from the colony. It's an outside teacher that comes in and teaches. And usually it's they teach K through eight, one teacher. Yep. The whole deal. Yep. And then that's it. Eighth grade traditional education, the mm-hmm. way we would look at it. Yeah. Not on calling. I would argue their education is much more robust than a lot of kids yet because they are so involved with all of the uh, farming and the ranching and the gardening. I mean, they, they're very capable. They're not kids you think of now. They're, you, you go on the colony and there's, there's 10 year olds driving big four-wheel drive tractors heading out to the field to go plow and you're like it's actually pretty impressive i know when i was in north dakota right out of out of dental school and all those big oil rigs over there sometimes boys from the colony will decide they they want to leave the colony and go see what the world is like and a lot of them end up over in the oil fields and they are hot commodity on those oil rigs because they're they can work man and it's just not work they're not they're not dumb work I mean, there's a lot of guys over there that can work, but they're dumb workers. But because they have been raised around machinery and, and industry, I mean, they make and do and fabricate and rebuild and mechanic everything on their own on these yeah. colonies. So they, they are very, um, very capable. After their education's finished, they spend some time being hands around the colony as needed. Once they get to a certain age, they go ahead and... Um, are kind of assigned like you are now going to be in the dairy barn so you're basically an apprentice dairyman but yeah they've had that i think that continues to be a problem for them a little bit that as it is in the world for everybody today they get to that that kind of late teenage rebellious stage and they want to see what the world's like and they they take off and most of them end up coming back to the colony and kind of settle back in and i think they find that to us, to you listening, this sounds just like such an archaic, strange way of life. But I think that a lot of the, the young men that leave realize the value and I don't want to say ease of life because they work really hard, but just the, the amount of things you don't have to worry about living on the colony. So I think it sounds like, you know, from talking to a few of the guys, most of the kids come back. But, but when the oil field was going hot out in the Bakken, it was really... It was really pulling a lot of uh, young men from the colonies. Yeah. And one last funny thing about that. You could always, well, we call them runaway hoots. And that's, that's what they, it's just what they are. They, they run away from the colony. And you can always, always tell when one is a runaway because they have just a slight German accent. They'll really try to hide it. But, 
and they they're driving a big old diesel pickup and usually smoking two packs of cigarettes and just going wild. You know, you'd, you'd go into the state fair and see them at the fair. And I'd say, and, I, and I, when I was in high school, I would say, hey, what, what colony did you come from? Because we have a great relationship with them. You know, always have, still do. What makes you think I'm coming from a colony? <laughs> I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> My dad knows all your dads and stuff. We might as well make friends here and just, just curious about your life. But yeah, good people. A lot of my patients are are from the colonies. They, you know, our whole life. I sometimes I feel like we were almost raised on colonies because we were always at them with livestock. So, have you had anyone? I've had this a couple times trucking where you are now. You tell them who you are, who your dad was. Tell them old rooster used to buy all your hogs, and he goes, "Yeah, he used to buy my my dad's hogs." Or, "Yeah, my uncle was the hog man." So you're kind of dealing with the sons of that generation now. Oh yeah, for sure. Fun. In fact, a there's a lot of, a lot of my patients that are my age that remember, you know, working in the, the pig barns when they were kids and they would, when they were hauling hogs out here to Fairfield, they would get a ride along and they remember coming to Fairfield as kids to unload. Just yeah. like I remember being a kid receiving them. In yeah. fact, a lot of these guys, I probably, when they'd show up, I'd probably run around with them and play with them. Yeah. He'd lot there. <laughs> yeah. Kind of crazy. Uh, so kind of a funny story with, the German speaking and, and dressed in black. Dad loaded hogs out every Tuesday, essentially. Mm-hmm. Most all the colonies brought their hogs in on Monday. Every once in a while, some would come in on Tuesday late. And they would come in as, as dad's truck was being loaded. And sometimes dad, if we were in school, he'd load the truck himself. And so the trying to think the best way to describe this, of, of the, how the chute was set up to load basically there was a main alley that ran east west Mm -hmm. and at the western end of this alley it dead ended it was a gate so if you need to drive in the alley but essentially it dead ended into this gate off of the south end of this dead end was the entrance to the chute so just a little basically you go down the alley there's just one little gap enough for livestock basically one at a time to to slip out of to your left and they could go up yeah like the southwestern end yeah, it's a dead end. Gotcha. So is that as you bring the hogs up the main alley, you're you're pulling gate shut behind you, mm-hmm. and at the very end you have kind of a squeeze gate where you'll get a, a slog of hogs in there and then pull this gate shut, and they're packed in there pretty tight. And Jackson had talked about loading hogs previously; they just don't go single file; they really pile up. And and so when you squeeze them in here, it's rare that they pile up going up the alley they usually are facing they always first turn to the opposite the side opposite side and so so there's a a ton of pressure on the squeeze gate and the gate on this and this alley as these hogs are really piled up and pushing trying to get turned around and uh dad was loading by himself one tuesday morning and he in this gate at the end of the alley the dead end gate had two big chains yeah, it was a double chain because it had all that pressure. All that so you pressure. put one chain up high and one down low. Yeah, secure. if you put one down low, they could put enough pressure at the top. It would open up somebody, they'd get out, same chain the top. So you chain both of them. And he noticed that one of these chains was unhooked or broken, I'm not sure. So he jumped outside to try and get that chain hooked to some degree to uh, make sure the gate didn't blow out. And as he was working on it the other chain did blow out and so slingshotted that that end gate you know with you know these 
thousands of pounds of hog pressure on it, slingshotted him, caught him right in the head. Which most injuries handling livestock occur from being hit by a gate that was propelled due to the force of an animal hitting it. I mean, that's oh yeah. Most of the injuries occur. Please side note: a lot of people who don't have a lot of experience, if they're helping you, you notice as they're pushing a gate shut, they have that gate, their arms bent, and that gate right up against their chest, under their chin, or right in front of their chin, their face, or oh. Yeah. It was more than taught. It was aggressively emphasized. Uh-huh. If you're pushing gates, you have your arms extended out in front of you. So you have the whole length of your arm to hopefully absorb that when an animal hits that gate and slams it back towards you, you're, it's not half an inch from your chin. Your chin's not the first thing the gate touches. Yeah. So anyway, so dad gets caught in the head, lays him out unconscious. Totally cold. He doesn't know how long he was out. When we get him on, we'll have to have him tell the story, but this is me <laughs> repeating what he said. He didn't know how long he was out, and as he kind of came to, he realized there were hogs around him because the gate opened, the hogs came out, but there were figures in black kind of standing over him, talking in a language, had no understanding of it. Now, he'd been unconscious, and he's just coming to, so he's, you got to understand, dad hated hauling hogs. <laughs> no, yeah, he hated hogs, so... Yeah. Hell for him would be, would be. eternity with hogs. <laughs> so he's laying on the ground surrounded by hogs with figures in black speaking in some kind of a tongue that he has no idea what it is. His first initial <laughs> thought was that he had died and that he had gone to hell. <laughs> and I try to imagine, you know, like a, imagine the view out of a camera lens where you look up and there's four black figures kind of stooped over you and you can just see a little daylight, you know, through their heads, but they're all stooped <laughs> speak in a different language but it was turned out it was one of the colonies was bringing pigs in and as they pulled in they saw him laid out there so they got out to see if he was okay but you know they were they were speaking a lot of times when they're amongst each other they speak german instead yeah of English. To, yeah right to each it's other their first language and yeah. so they were they're trying to figure out if he was alive or what was going on as, <laughs> as he lay out there but that's you know. uh, so whenever i, I see that. them dressed in black and, and speaking german i i always am taken back to that um Taken back to that story dad tells. We'll have to have him tell that story, but lucky it didn't kill him. Yeah, right. Yeah. Something else that we had mentioned on a previous podcast I wanted to go into a little bit more too. You had made reference to the fall run. Yeah. Let's talk about that. The fall run. So that's when, coming up. Yeah, it's it always it always sneaks up so fast. You're like, man, summer's great. Summer's great. We're haying. There's the fair. You know, we're playing music. And then all of a sudden... You're in the middle of Nebraska in the blink of an eye going, what am I doing? What am I doing? Oh, what am I doing? <laughs> and you guys, hauling livestock is glorious. It's kind of the glorified, we've mentioned this before, but you're kind of, I don't know if we self-consider ourselves or if our fellow peers in the trucking world would agree that it's kind of like the top, whatever, the top notch of trucking. But I promise you all, that there comes a moment for every single livestock hauler where it's like three in the morning and you're on the same road you've been on. You're like on mile 5,000 for the week and you just let out a primal scream in your truck and just shake your fist at the windows. Ah! You just go, what am I doing with my life? What decisions have I made that put me right here? 
at this moment that I'm, nah, we all <laughs> go through that. And um, I'm sure it's not just livestock haulers, but so you try to gear up for it mentally, but the fall run is caused by more or less by the, the breeding cycle that's allowed in, in these Northern States, you know, down South, a lot of livestock producers, cattle producers, they don't necessarily have what we call a breeding season or a calving season. They produce livestock year round. So they just have cows, you know, dropping calves out. And as those calves get big enough, they sort out a handful of them and take them to the auction. But up here in Montana and, you know, in the Dakotas and, you know, Wyoming and these colder states, you have to kind of be a little more organized with it because of the weather patterns. You know, you can kind of calve from, if you're real brave and like to be living in the barn, you know, for the winter, you can start calving in January. But basically, let's just say it's from January till kind of the end of April is the typical bulk of the calving season in these northern states. Now, let me interject there. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of thought on whether that's, you should calve at that time. We're not making a comment on that. We're just telling you how it is. Right. This is just what it is. <laughs> this is yep. just what it is. General terms. Everyone has their own opinions and their own ways to run and to each their own. So, but this creates, Montana has more cattle than people. I can't remember the latest cash. I should have looked that up. I can't remember how many cattle we have in Montana, but uh, in the million, right? Well, more than a million, but in the millions. And all those cattle produce calves in that window. Those calves grow up through the spring and the summertime. At some point, it's time to wean them from their mothers. And it's time for them to move on to the next stage, which would be the growing stage. And so nobody in Montana, nobody in, I'm speaking generally, there are some feedlots in Montana and some growing yards in Wyoming and, and North Dakota. But generally speaking, most, the bulk of the growing that happens to cattle happens in the Midwest. And regardless whether they're being grown in the northern states or the midwestern states, all those cattle have to leave the ranch. And there's only one way that cattle can leave the ranch and it ain't in a cattle drive. I'll say that. It's all on a livestock trailer. So starting in, you know, it starts to just trickle in in September and then by usually by the 1st of October until Christmas Eve you have that window to move the bulk of all those cattle out of Montana to their respective growing yards from, you know, Minnesota down to Kansas, to Oklahoma, Texas. A few, a few, don't ask me how, but a few loads went to New Mexico. Nebraska's big one. Nebraska's huge. The bulk of what I do is Nebraska. I think that's the bulk of what most people go to. But that creates this thing called the fall run where it's it's literally by you know the second week of october it is as quick as you can drive from montana to the given destination in the midwest and get back there's another load ready for you there's no end to it it's from the heat of it's from that second week of october until the heat heat is till thanksgiving so you have about six weeks there where it is just back and forth. And that is what creates that insanity, that primal scream in the night is after your like millionth trip where you don't even know anymore. You, you can't eat food. Nothing looks good. Usually you go into the truck stop and you're like, oh, nutty bars. Those look good. Like nothing. Everything makes you want to throw up. Water makes you want to throw up. Soda makes you want to throw up. Like everything, just everything. And that's what, that's what creates that. 
is this fall run that we call it. Stressful. Ugh. I mean, because you've got the producers who need their cattle moved and you've got the buyers who need those cattle moved. Yeah. And they need them now and they need them. Once you load, you can't stop. And you're stuck between the two, the producer and the buyer. On one end, somebody's not going to be happy. If you're hauling a load of cheap cattle, let's call them, the purchaser on the end is happy. So he's happy to see him like, hey, I got a deal on these cattle. Well, what that means that the seller is not happy because he contracted those cattle too soon in the year and now the market's higher than it was when he sold them. So he's grumpy or vice versa. The rancher's like, oh, I got so much money for these, which is rare, by the way. It's rare for you ever to hear, no matter what the market is, if you ever hear a rancher talking about how much money he got for his cattle in a positive way, you may want to remember that moment and catalog it in your journal. And here you are dealing between the two parties on just never enough sleep. But it's, it's the way it is. It's just, and there's no way around it. It's just, it's there. It's like this impassable. So as a driver, what's the attraction of the fall rung? Money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> money. Yeah. Money is, uh, as, as an older adult now, I guess. Yeah. Money is the only thing for me. I do love trucking, but the fall run takes it way beyond love of trucking. Like loving trucks and trucking is going out and driving a couple thousand miles a week, hauling some loads, meeting some nice people. The fall run goes so far beyond that, that even by the end of it, you don't even care about the money. You're like, I don't, I don't, I don't care. I just want out of this truck. Like I love trucks. And I mean, I am the biggest fan of trucks and trucking. And by the end of that fall run, I'm like, uh-uh, mm-mm, mm-mm. You set a record for miles driven in a month this last fall run, didn't you? Uh, I did in a, it was, I can't remember my monthly total, but I had hit, I hit a horrible milestone for a week. I'll just tell you that I had a co-driver with me. How's that? (laughs) Just imagine in your imagination that I had a co-driver with me, but I did one week and this is almost impossible. Not only humanly impossible, but logistically impossible where I did 7,000 miles in seven days. And it was the most awful experience of my life. Like there's, I don't even like to tell anybody about it anymore because I'm like, it's it's not cool. It was like, I didn't enjoy a second of it. I remember I got to that, that midnight. And it was was funny part about this is it was a Sunday to a Sunday. And I got to that midnight mark that Sunday night and was adding up my odometer. It was like 6,900 and something. And I was like, I don't even care that I did that. Like that was dumb. And I didn't do, I didn't go out to be like, I'm setting a record this week. We're going to get in the Guinness book of world records as the dumbest cattle trucker in the country. There's just loads that needed covered. And usually out of Montana, it's impossible. Some of these cattle haulers down South that run like, you know, they run like I, I shouldn't even say what for you. I'm not sure. I 10 maybe from like California out to Texas, 85 miles an hour, hammer down freeway driving. Montana, it's miles and miles of two lanes. So that really inhibits your miles just because you're going through towns. And, but I just, everything just lined up in the most perfect yet awful way to allow me to get back in time. And, and these were freeway runs. A lot of them were coming out of Billings, Missoula, right on the freeway. Yeah, and I did that. And that was one of those weeks where I'm like, I don't even care the ridiculous amount of money that piled up that week. Like, the four years that I lost off the tail end of my life from that week's <laughs> tortures. Oh, the. So my interaction with truckers most of my life 
had been livestock haulers, mm-hmm. just dad, dad's buddies, people dad worked with. And it seemed like most of them got into it, fall run, driving. Yeah. So with someone getting into trucking, livestock trucking, they're kind of getting into that fall run, probably for demand for the money as well. Yeah. Yeah. All, all the people I'm familiar with initially get into it for that because they know that, well, that's where the money is. And, and usually there are people that have other things going on. A lot of times they're not actually full-time. It, you don't find, a, at least up here, a ton of full-time cattle truckers because there's not enough cattle here to, to run full-time. Mm. So they do other stuff in the off-season, but I don't think you can hold it. There's a few, there are some guys out there, some of you out there that are full-time livestock haulers that'll do Montana cattle in the fall, and then they'll go down and do Florida in the, in the Montana winter. They're hauling cattle out of Florida, and then they transition to California to do the spring run out of California. Those guys are crazy hardcore. And if any of you guys are out there listening that do that, totally have all my respect and my wonder and my awe. Yeah, most of the guys around here, you know, they're either farmers or ranchers that have a truck and they go, well, I'm going to license it and run cattle for the fall to, to make some money. Yeah. If a uh, young guy's wanting to get in to trucking, wants to make some money, has a little bit of vigor, yeah. hit the fall run. Hit the fall run. But it's not just trucking though, because you got to have a little bit of understanding of how to, how to work a cow. Right. This is the hardest part about livestock hauling. People say, how do I get, and I get comments and questions all the time. And I try to respond as best I can, but people always want to know, how do you get into hauling livestock? And it has very little to do with trucking. You kind of have to just experience the trucking as far as the hours and the miles and just roll into that. The whole biggest thing is what you're alluding to is livestock handling. If you can't understand and handle livestock, you're just going to have a horrible time because on each end of the trip, you're either loading cattle and handling, you know, we haul over a hundred head of calves in each load. So you're handling a lot of numbers of livestock and you, that's the key and handling livestock. It's not like, well, learn how to run a forklift and you can unload your, you know, your van trailer on your own if you need. Handling livestock is almost the, I've seen some people pick it up later in their years, but it's, it's very hard because it's something you almost have to learn from your childhood or have been around it in some form to understand animal psychology. You start young with it. You almost learn to read an animal's body. You can see what it's thinking and doing without even realizing that you're seeing and understanding what that animal is. Just, it's just part of your makeup because you've been around it so long. Yeah. But let's say someone no experience wants to get into it and they come to their dentist and ask their dentist, <laughs> what do you think the best way to get into livestock calling is? Now, this isn't outside the realm of possibility yeah. that someone asks their dentist. Let me give you an example. Okay. <laughs> I had a patient a couple years ago come in and he started talking about a, a buddy of his that had died and he had a bunch of gold crowns and his family wanted those gold crowns out of his mouth. And so they went to the funeral home and the funeral home director wouldn't take him out for him and they wouldn't let the family go into the the dead father's mouth themselves and take them out. This is weird. <laughs> this is weird. But I'm still trying to process what you're telling me. Okay, I'm so like, I'm oh. going to say it again. So I have a patient who's telling me about a friend of his who died. Okay. The dead man had gold crowns in his mouth and okay. the family thought there was some value in these gold crowns. Yeah, yeah there's probably, I don't know, they're, eight, they're 80 or 90 bucks. Probably worth of listening to a podcast that said something about gold USA purchasing or something so they thought 
they could get these gold crowns out of his mouth by having the funeral home director. Yeah. Yeah. Take him out for him or they'll just go in themselves. Well, and I mean, out. why not? They deal with the embalming. I mean, what's popping a couple teeth out? Answer was hard. No, hard. No. They were told they had to have a dentist come in and do it. I, I've never in all my education took the course on removing gold crowns from a dead body. <laughs> and I <laughs> couldn't find that one. If someone came and asked me to do that, I, I'm not sure what I'd say. The truth. I have this little sneaking suspicion that because of just you and your ways, I have a feeling you'd end up in the mortuary. And so anyway, so he's telling me the story and he goes, so that brings me to my question for you. He goes, I need you to get me to get me set up to donate my body to science when I die. I first thought he was joking. And then I, I realized that he's dead serious that somehow he thought his dentist or the person that's doing his dentistry is the person that you talk to. He goes, yeah. He goes, next time I come in, just have me sign the form. Just have that form ready and I'll sign it. I said, and I said how, like, yeah, where is this? How do you think <laughs> your dentist is the person that you go to to donate your body to science? Yeah. So maybe someone will come to their dentist and ask, how do you get into livestock hauling? What's the best way? Well, that's my point. Yeah. This is what I would say. I mean, if I you was have asked. Google, you have your dentist. Mm-hmm. This is what I would say if I was asked, tell me if I'm right or wrong. Uh And again, this is basing it off of my experience. And you may correct me in what I'm going to say next too, (laughs) because you've worked with me. I would say that I'm far above the average rancher or farmer in livestock handling Mm -hmm. ability. Now I have raised way less amounts of animals than a rancher, but because we had a feedlot that had hundreds of animals every week in and out. Right. For 18 years, basically. Mm-hmm. I handled a lot more animals than the average rancher, even though I didn't raise as many. So I would make an argument that I have better livestock handling ability right. than someone who just raises livestock. And, and you guys, don't just think about that for a minute, what he said, because <laughs> you're going, yeah, you've been in all the college circles, you're a dentist, blah, blah. Think about what he just said. It's because not only do we produce and raise, but we've spent years in a buying and selling situation where you know most producers handle their livestock in a corral setting just a few times a year where we're doing that constantly all the time in the feedlot setting in the sale barn setting sorting so that's that's what you're getting i i I agree completely yeah so this brings me to the point if someone's wanting to get into livestock hauling it's not the trucking, it's the ability to work livestock in a corral setting. Mm-hmm. They probably should go get a job at a livestock auction. Yep. Start out in a livestock yard mm-hmm. and just, you'd have to start at the bottom, but yeah. you're going to start, you're going to be working so many hundreds of head of animal a week that you're going to have way more. See, I don't think, if you want to haul livestock, I don't think the best thing is to get a job on a ranch. Because like you say, right. On a ranch, your cattle are actually in a corral being worked a few times a year. Mm-hmm. Most of the year, they're out grazing. Right. Whereas if you get a job in a, uh, in a livestock auction, you're in the corrals working those livestock mm-hmm. every time you're at work. One of my, just a quick note on this. One of my favorite, and this has happened in a couple different scenarios, but one of my favorite things is when you show up to load cattle. And you can tell when you roll up to whatever place you're loading cattle that the cattle buyer who when, when the cattle buyer shows up to the ranch, so you have the rent, the producer with the stock, the cattle buyer, 
who's in charge of weighing the cattle, sorting the cattle, looking for any issues, separating the heifers from the steers, and then he gets them loaded on the truck. And you can tell right away when you pull up in your semi if the cattle buyer is having a good or a bad day. And, you know, it's kind of 50-50. Half the time it's just, for whatever reason, the cattle aren't working very good. And, man, I can't tell you how many times I've jumped in the corral as the trucker. Here's the truckers. <laughs> Here comes the trucker. Okay. And then they always are upset because they're like, he's going to come wonder, when are we getting loaded? How long is it going to be? Well, I understand all that stuff because I've been around it forever. I, it's obvious that you're two hours from being ready to load. So I'm not going to ask you when we're loading. So I'll come over and, hey, can I swing a gate? Meaning he's going to sort the cattle. And as he sends cattle back down the alleyway towards the, the pens, the sorting pens, He's going to say inside or buy, meaning, you know, let this one inside your pen, let it go by into the next pen. It's sorting. It's a sorting procedure. And you say, hey, can I, can I give you a hand? I'll grab a gate, help move this along. And they just roll their eyes and, oh, this dumb trucker, he didn't. And you get going and pretty soon they're like, oh, he, he knows. He, I don't have to yell at you to get out of that way or to move over to the side so the cow can go by or they'll go in to go start weighing some and you'll start you know, picking through the next bunch and pulling the small ones out and he gets out of the shed, out of the scale house to come start sorting the next bunch and you've got, you know, 10 head of little light steers sorted off the main bunch and he's like, hmm. <laughs> and I don't ever say anything. You're just like, oh, I just, I don't, you know, tell him what I've done in my life and that I've spent hours and days and months in a sale barn sorting cattle. <laughs> it's always funny. Yeah. I ran into that situation up weeks ago so i have a flock of sheep mm-hmm. i think a flock that's right we're not a herd flock of sheep flock sheep right yeah and i had uh the sheep sale that send stuff to was five hours away and i had four rams that needed to go and i've been sitting on them for a long time because i'm not going to drive five hours for four rams for it. yeah but there is a little group in this area that puts together a semi-load periodically drive into the western auction just outside of great falls so they like co-op, a bunch of small people get together and like make one, one semi-load one load, to send, yeah. so it's cheaper. And so this truck driver, you know, depending on, he has, he has what it costs him to, to take a load from Western to Billings. And then he divides out by how many head are on his, on his truck. And then so everyone that, that has brought animals in will then just pay, pay whatever that is. And it's yeah. nice because it's taken right out of the, Actually, the, the auction pays him, and then it's just taken right out of your check. So he doesn't have to chase all of you producers down individually. No, the auction, auction just pays him, and then they just pull it right out of Super our slick. Check. Yeah, real easy. So uh, a few weeks ago, this was all set up, went in there to drop off. Well, I guess I'll get into this whole story. Might as well. <laughs> I've been waiting <laughs> for about six months oh. to get these rams out. Yeah. And I could not get things to line up to get these um, rams to this truck because mm-hmm. it's every couple months they have it and I could not get them there. Just weird things kept popping up. There were a couple times I had them loaded in the trailer and something came up that I could not, could not drive them in. And so Saturday morning, I'd get up super early, get them loaded, get, get them sorted off, they're loaded, they're ready to go like the, three hours in advance. The day has arrived. You've been waiting all this time. So I get up, good to go. I don't know what happened, Uh-oh. <laughs> but the time got away from me and I 
I got in and go, I'm going to barely, barely make it in there. I jump in the truck, start going. I realize that I've got a low tire on my truck, which I'm like, oh, I better, better, ah, I better go. It's a gamble, right? So yeah, because if it run up to the tire shop, my compressor that I have right now isn't powerful enough because there's some bigger tires on this truck, mm-hmm. not big enough to pump the air into them. So Take forever. Yeah, just run up there, the tire shop. He starts filling it for whatever reason. Their compressor is having some issues, so it's taking forever for this one tire. And then he just happens to go check the other four and they all need air. So fill them all up. And this is after, this is after you're already, already late. Crunched, right? I'm already okay. late. Okay. So I've got my kid with me. So we um, get in and take off. And now we're coming back by our property. And I noticed that my center pivot is in a place that's not supposed to be. I don't know what happened. If there was a power outage, or something that, that screwed up the GPS on it. I jump out. And realize that this is not a quick fix. So I turn the pivot off, but the water is still running to the pump, and I need to have the irrigation district shut that off. So I start trying to trying to call the they call him a ditch rider, the guy who runs the water in the area where we live. And I can't get a hold of him, can't get a hold of him, and finally he calls me back. And he's um he's in Kalispell for the weekend. So <laughs> he's not around. And so I mean it's not a big deal, but the thing is, is I get a certain allotment of water. Yeah, so you're wasting. I'm wasting my allotment of water, which I don't want to do. And plus, it's, you know, I think a mismanagement of of our water resource anyway. So I have to start scrolling, looking for phone numbers to find someone else at the irrigation district. I finally get a hold of someone to turn the water off for me. So, okay, now I'm ready to go on the road. And how late are you at this point? You're probably already supposed to be there. And you haven't left your place, basically. No, I'm, I'm about 10 minutes from when I'm supposed to be there. But I'm 20 minutes behind now. Yeah. So maybe 30 minutes. So I'm, I'm late no matter what right now. We get about five miles up the road and my kid's like, dad, I got to go to the bathroom. I'm like, can you wait? I don't think I can. And I look back and in the rear view mirror, he's sitting in the back seat and his face <laughs> is all scrunched up. You can he's see it. Clenched oh, down. Oh no. I mean, he's just clenching it to the point that his whole face is <laughs> just trying his best. I'm like, oh, so he can't wait. So, I'm, so I pull over on the side of the road and get out. He's like, Dad, I, I went a little bit in my pants already. So I, he gets the pants and I kind of pick him up. He's just got, um, he's got real bad diarrhea oh, everywhere. No. But he'd already gone somewhat in his pants. Oh. And it's all down his legs. And I'm like, ah. I said, sorry, bud. <laughs> We're pulling your pants up and it's just going to have to ride. <laughs> he's going to be doing a podcast in 20 years talking about you think your dad was bad one time. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm convinced that we've, um, we've missed the window. The truck's going to be long gone by the time we get there. So we get in there and we were late by 20 minutes, but the truck hadn't arrived. And so there's, a, oh. there's a line of all the other okay. people who were waiting to unload for the truck. I don't know. There was, I don't know, six or seven other people with varying amounts of numbers of, of sheep and goats. Turn out the trucker. So it's hot day. Trucker had started early and ran into some complications at uh, another place on the road. He was loading a couple hundred head of sheep. So he's been, he's not just picking up at this place. He's, he picked up some bigger bunches on the way. A couple other bunches, yep. Which I can tell you from a trucking standpoint, the more stops you make, the more, especially on a hot day with livestock, you start losing patience and you're, you get irritated pretty quick. So we were 20 minutes late and we waited about 45, 60 more minutes before he showed up. So. Loading sheep, 
is different than loading cattle. Yeah. Frustration and anger is commonly involved with it. So he's truckers yeah. late. So he's, he's got to be on the road. It's hot. Got load. He's late. Things haven't gone good. So you can imagine the, you can imagine the mood the trucker was in when he showed up. Uh-huh. Not good. Right. Now on top of that, the people who are bringing livestock in, livestock, sheep and goats, it's only sheep and goats. I shouldn't say livestock. I should specify sheep and goats from this, this general area. Very few of them are produced in any kind of numbers. They have a couple, couple barnyard goats, a couple um, pet sheep. They don't know what to do with them, so they just get on this list. They can bring them in. So people in those situations, ability to handle livestock is limited. Virtually non-existent, I think would be. So this trucker stops here regularly to pick up sheep and goats from a broader group of people who have essentially no ability to handle livestock in a corral setting, which is, it's at the auction yards in, um, in Great Falls. So it's, you know, big corral system, you know, big shoots designed to handle thousands of head of animals. So handling livestock in a corral setting, which we just talked about is something that you just don't know how to do. It, it takes a lot of experience. So this truck driver is already, already upset being late and he pulls in and sees about 10 trucks all with trailers of all these people and you gotta keep them all separate who don't know um uh, don't know uh much about it how and, to handle things. and they're you know it's probably fair and okay to say that the people that have one or two goats or a few sheep are you know kind of homesteady type you know pretty not in any bad way they're just kind of the, the calm like more at peace with life type of folks typically and so to, to combine that with the inability to handle livestock in the corrals on a hot day behind schedule, I'm kind of seeing this. I can see it. Now, let me side note here. I am, could not be more supportive of people owning sheep. Correct. hundred percent. Right. If you have space for it, the benefits to your family and your children mm-hmm. and your whole life by having these, I am a supporter of this. I wish everybody had. Completely. Couple. Right. Right. That doesn't mean you know how to handle them, <laughs> especially in a crowd setting loading into a semi. Uh-huh. 100% of the sheep and goats have never been inside a semi. Different setting for the animals than... And on top of this, they become somewhat of a pet in smaller numbers. The smaller your herd, just naturally, the more hand care they receive, which makes them very tame, which actually exacerbates the problem because at least somewhat wild animals you know what i mean by wild that they run out you can kind of spook them or ah they don't want to be by you you can chase them a little bit yeah you can chase them them a little but the more tame an animal gets the less they can chase which really can get the blood boiling when you're trying to do stuff you know to even further illustrate some of these animals coming in are in a small suv in the luggage compartment back area they they hang some plastic and then that's yeah. how they're hauling. So, I mean, this is, <laughs> we, I think we were painting a pretty good picture here. Anyway, I can tell this truck driver is pretty upset. And so I, I jump out and, uh, to guide him back into the chute, which is, we talked on previous podcasts. It's helpful to have so dad taught, Rooster taught you that since day one. So I jumped out, out just help. to try and help him. He's yelling at me to get out of there. Get out of there. <laughs> because he thinks 
Are they so? He thinks yeah, I'm he thinks you're just, another one of these just getting in the way, know, inexperienced handlers. So um, get out, and I just trying to just get a feel for what what's going on because I'm not even sure how how he wants all this stuff because you know truck drivers they know where their weights need to be, they know the size of their compartments, how many animals can go to each compartment. He said, "Okay, this is what I need," and so I went out and helped gather those up, and and he was just chewing me the whole time. Yeah, get out of the way! I'll get out, get out of the way, and so I. I was trying to do it and he, no one else there knew how to get sheep up a chute. It was a long chute and it was the upper deck of his trailer. You know, that Western chute long, it's a long chute. And so sheep have a sheep want to bunch up when they're being chased. You know, any predation, they bunch up into a, a tight, a tight, uh, tight pack. Whereas cows, Loading them to shoot, they don't do that. You can get one started and it keeps going. Yeah, they follow in. Yeah. Sheep will go up about four feet and then turn around and come right back to the group. So you you end up hand loading a lot of sheep. Right. At least you drag a bunch up to shoot and then you get some that see you the one you drug up there and then they'll kind of chase after it. But it is not just, you know, chasing with the shoot. It's it's a lot of hand work getting sheep it's, loaded. Yeah. In my mind, they're they're the hardest livestock to deal with. And some of you if they're wild sheep, they'll run right on, but these are not the case. And small bunches of sheep are hands down the worst, hardest thing to load. He's crawling in and out of his truck to set things up and he's coming up to load the sheep. And I'm doing my best to, to, to help out, but not make him so mad that I'm helping out. Because <laughs> he keeps telling <laughs> me to get out of the way. Help. <laughs> but it wasn't very long before he realized, huh? Kind of knows what he's doing. And so he got to the point he wouldn't even come out of his truck anymore. Yeah. He'd just yell out how many head he wanted. And so I, <laughs> I'd go down and bring him up. But it was kind of that thing where he figured out that, huh, I guess he knows. But at one point, um, there was about 50% goats and 50% sheep, number-wise. We were loading and I was pushing sheep or goats. I don't remember which up to shoot. And some of the ones that were supposed to come next, people trying to bring him up. Didn't, weren't paying attention and two of the goats got out and headed for the freeway well like got out out got out they're out like of the out of the corrals oh boy take off running and i was up on top of the chute just finishing the last push into the truck and i see these goats and so a couple of the the people there that were bringing stuff in went to bring those goats in and they started trying to herd them from about 60 yards 60 yard perimeter okay which Real low pressure style. Essentially is, you might as well go sit in your truck and watch them go get hit on the freeway because that's where the goats were headed. It was to the freeway. So I jumped off the, the chute and ran and, and got around them and they ended up going all over the place. I got them cornered and essentially got a hold of a back leg on each one of them started just kind of dragging them back. And then someone else finally came and I, I just picked the one goat up and carried it back instead of even trying to chase it. Yeah. Loaded the other goats by hand. Okay. I'm, I'm getting to a point with this goat part. So get everything loaded. I was expecting to just drop my sheep off, maybe help load my four rams instead of help load almost the whole truck, which is all by hand. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to pick up a freezer next after that. Oh, cool. so your journey continues on. My journey on. continues on. And all the while, the poor child is patiently But every, every, He was outside. He's all dried off, and okay. everything's crusted over, so he's good to go. <laughs> There, there were, even, there were other kids even playing. So we're, yeah. we're past that part. Okay. That was just one of the irritations of getting there. Anyway, so we get into the appliance place selling appliances. And I had to go pick this freezer out. And 
with the sheep and the goats, a lot of times you're reaching around a neck to kind of turn them around. So my forearm from about my wrist to mid bicep, very dirty from mm-hmm. grabbing these, you know, get my arm under their neck and pulling them around. So I went into the bathroom to just wash my arms off and I brought my kid in with me. We got in the bathroom and he started dry heaving. <laughs> oh no. I thought, what? I said, what's going on? And he couldn't hardly, he goes, dad, you stink so bad. <laughs> and I've never, I oh, have, from the goats, probably. I have never, <laughs> I've never heard him dry heave for a smell. One time, actually, one time, we'd had a sheep die that had been in the barn. I hadn't realized it. And it was midsummer. She'd been in there for a while. And so I hooked her on the back of the four-wheeler and was dragging her to a truck to haul her off. And she was so, um, so maggoted out that her stomach broke open and all her innards mm-hmm. fell out. And, he <laughs> and the kid was downwind of it. So you're so, so you're on level with that. That's, on level you're with, on level with two the, times I've seen him dry heave. Okay. And so so I got out and I realized I'm in this fancy appliance store full of Saturday shoppers. <laughs> and I am I smell like rank goats. I hadn't even realized I smelled that because I'd been around it. I'd you know been in it. Oh. So that was uh anyway, that was the um that story was did, so did the did the trucker in the end ever give you any verbal affirmation or was it just kind of an unspoken thank you? I think it was an unspoken thank you because he didn't say anything to me. Okay, so a tip for you guys. Here's a little trucking tip for you. Anytime that you are anywhere, I don't care if you're hauling livestock, if you're hauling van trailer, flatbed, reefer, equipment, whatever it is, anytime that somebody does something that is in your favor, that is like, wow, I didn't expect to get loaded that quick. Or I didn't expect somebody to be willing to stay after work five minutes and get my truck unloaded. You got to make sure that you rub their belly a little bit, so to speak, because I'm like with you, it wouldn't have mattered. You don't care if the guy thanks you or not, you know, but my experience in in the different areas of trucking is that it goes so far, a little thanks, a little positive reinforcement for people that are in your circle of, of work, you've got to give them a little credit. And next time you show up, pretty soon you've got this relationship and it goes so far in trucking. And that, that was just something that popped in my head I wanted to share because it gets you so far. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So all of this, all these, these rabbit hole stories we just went down, we're all to the point of if you want to get into hauling livestock, <laughs> you may inquire of your dentist and your dentist is going to tell you go get a job at a place that regularly actually handles, doesn't raise, but handles livestock because livestock trucking is all about handling livestock, understanding when an animal's in discomfort, uh, when an animal is in a dangerous place. I mean, when I say dangerous, like, oh, that calf is laying down in the trailer. It's laying down comfortably right now, but it's in a place that makes it vulnerable to get tipped over and potentially die between your next fuel stop. You learn all that from handling livestock in a corral type situation. That's my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Couldn't agree more, man. 100%. And here's the other thing. I tell this to people. There's so much animal handling, stockyard style animal handling videos on YouTube now that are out there because they People in agriculture want people to be educated. They want people to understand the psychology of an animal and how they're trying to move and how you can work with them to keep them comfortable while you're, you're getting them where they need to be going. 
There's so many resources out there. The Livestock Marketing Association has videos on animal handling. The I think the I can't remember the other name, but there, there's a lot. If you if you type in proper livestock handling techniques on YouTube, it's just this fountain of of information. So you can couple that with going and sale barns, livestock auctions are always looking for help because it's usually only one or two days a week, part time, half the day, and um, most of them will gladly, especially if you've been watching those videos and and are willing to learn. Yeah. Let me add a little more to this and tell me if I'm on the right track. Someone wants to get into livestock hauling because they know they can, uh, they can make some good money during a fall run type setting. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to jump right into it. So maybe outside of the fall run, see if you can work a couple days a week where there are sales, start getting some handling experience. If you have a CDL and you have some driving experience, you might find a driver who's pushing real hard who could use a co-driver or you're going to be able to drive with someone who knows how to load, unload, and you can start getting some experience. Yeah. Co-driving, not where you're getting the experience to actually drive the truck, you know, because I'm assuming you already have the driving experience, but you're, you're getting experience in, in the loading and unloading. Right. And be patient. This is, the, this is the other huge thing. Just be patient with the process. Know that becoming a proper animal handler, it takes time. So... Don't just go, well, if I can't just go do it now, forget it. If you really want this for yourself, be patient with the process. Trust that what we're telling you will teach you proper techniques and it will get you into the industry in a way that is correct. You know, not a, well, my buddy, I grew up with a buddy that had some cattle and I, I branded with him one time. You know, you, you get a lot of that and it's better than nothing, but just be patient and do it right and um, you'll last. It lasts a long time doing it. I think we're about to wrap up here. If anyone does have questions about livestock calling and wants to get a hold of Jackson, he'll give you his Instagram. You can reach out there. You can reach out on Instagram to the Steady at the Wheel Podcast, or also email Steady at the Wheel Podcast at Gmail dot com. Yeah, you can uh, you can find me on Instagram at Shumanush S H U M U N U S H. I try to be good, especially uh, answering industry questions. And, um, I'm always happy to, to give a few tips and whatnot. And uh, with livestock handling, there's probably as many different ways to handle livestock as there is producers. So we're not judging you. If you end up getting that animal in the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> good job. The right direction. <laughs> good job. Because there's times I haven't been able to. Oh, right. So... Anything else? No, I think that uh, I think that does it, man. All right, another good one in the books. <laughs>